Welcome to the podcast. This series, we've been focusing on mental health. And in the first of a two-part interview, we're talking to Dr. Mark Salter, who is a consultant adult psychiatrist at the Homerton Hospital in London. His areas of special interest are trauma and substance misuse, the ethics of psychiatry and community care. In this first episode, we'll be talking to him about his own background and mental health from an individual's perspective. And in part two, we'll talk to him about mental health from a societal perspective. We start by asking Mark a little bit about his early life. Yeah, well, I was uh, born in Barking, in the same ward as Bobby Moore, the football player, and I was born on Cup Final Day. <laughs> and uh, no, I was raised in um, out in Essex uh, in the in the sixties, and uh, by a family of a working class maker, basically. And um, uh, I suppose you know, that's kind of important, really, because I was raised in an entirely white working class world of Essex, and so I knew nothing about what I call the real world <laughs> outside of it, until I got to medical school in Whitechapel at the age of uh, 16 or 17. No, 17 or 18, it's a bit of a culture shock. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, um, that means I was raised in an environment that had quite a strong sense of community, I think. You know, it was traditional. My both my parents came from the East End. Uh, and, uh, you know, what was going on next door was part of the community's business, in a way. And I was grew up with a very strong sense of, um, you know, look after the people next year. Uh you know, that's, a, that's what I need to say about it, really. <laughs> uh, those things with very family and network have always been very important to me. What do you enjoy the most about being a psychiatrist? Well, oh, God, where do you begin? I mean, well, first of all, I'm a doctor. I'm a medical doctor. And I should explain that um, uh, at medical school, um, uh, you know, I was bombarded by the natural experiences of training to be a doctor a doctor's training a medical degree is not a degree it's an apprenticeship and it's a rite of passage remember doctors only get the letters dr in front of their name for a bachelor degree they're not doctorates they're just doctors medical doctors but that means that society is as it were conferring the mark of respect for us for going into doing things about this thing called illness we go into places where nurses and social workers go that other people often dare to dread. They're called hospitals, or in my case, lunatic asylums, or funny farms, or nut houses, or puggle colour, whichever language you want to use. So, as a doctor, you know, I've been deeply imbued with the idea of suffering close up at three in the morning when I'd rather be in bed, and that's a crucial bit of the training. Now, to understand the illness, you've got to understand the mind, the body, and if you like, the soul, but like I said, the community, the world you come from. There's only one branch of medicine that takes all of those equally seriously, and that's psychiatry. Psychiatry is the only branch of medicine where you have to read the newspapers. And that's what makes me want to do psychiatry. You've worked as a doctor for many years. Um, 35, 40? 40, 40 40 well, I qualified in 83, so what's the maths on that? You know, yeah, you're 39 years, what, 30, 37 it's years. Long, it's a long time. Um, yes. Yeah. And thinking about the fact that it's January, where a time when people are cutting down on drinking, taking drugs maybe, if I was looking to stop or cut down, what practical advice would you be able to give? You know, moving into the new year is always a time that we kind of, it's a kind of a cliched association with making a fresh start. But, you know, the very idea that you need to lay all the all the responsibility for the fresh start at the door of the year calendar, I think is the first mistake. You could do this any time. You've got to want to mean it. You've got to reach some sort of deeply private personal tipping point. So that means beware of the cons you give yourself. Oh, it's New Year, I'll do it. Or, oh, I'm going to get that gym membership. Oh, I'm going to get that gadget. I'm going to go on that diet. 
Western civilization is out to lunch on the quick fix. It's so easy to blame your attempts and your, your to, to, to hang, to hang your, your attempts to sort your life out on the hook of doing something, which is a quick fix. But what you're doing is you're dodging the truth. It's all about you. And you are your mind, your body and your world. And if you look after what goes into your mouth and comes out of it, you do stuff all day. And when I say do stuff, I mean that means what you stop doing from putting things in your mouth like drugs or smoke or booze or whatever. That is what's going to make the difference. Don't con yourself, basically, on the 1st of January or the 13th or whenever. That's what you've got to really do to make a difference. Otherwise, you're really wasting your time. But remember, there's a million and one people out there who get quick, get quick, fit, get fit quick routines that is like the old modern version of snake oil. They want to make money out of your ambivalence about doing something. The forces are strong. So that's what I'm saying. Look at your mind, look at your body, look at your world. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I think this year that we've had, COVID um, has, for a lot of people, it's been a very difficult thing to deal with. And so mm. people have used drink, used drugs um, as, a, yeah. as a coping mechanism during this difficult yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. And it's kind of, you know, been quite easily able to hide what they're, you know, doing from mm. colleagues and from you know all that kind of thing um so it's been a lot harder for a lot of people yeah money you say that you you say it's been a hard for a lot of people you twice you use that phrase a lot of people it's been let's be honest about it let's not dumb this down it's been hard for everyone mm. you know the whole planet has been engulfed by something we hadn't really seen in living memory you know but we have to remember that that is and you know, what was it Nietzsche said? What well, doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Well, you know, respect to the millions of people who've got the virus and those and the, the thousands, hundreds of thousands who've died of it. But we've learned an awful lot. Look at this. We have gone from naught to, to in 10 months to, to an effective working vaccine. Three vaccines at the moment for this. That is incredible. Human beings can now take a bug and identify it, read its genes, rewrite a chemical that rewires our genes to kill the bug. We could do that. That couldn't have been done a year ago. That is a gobsmacking thing. Next thing, we've learned some amazing social truths. Now, Durkheim, the famous sociologist from France, described these 100 years ago. But look what happens when something massive happens that affects us all. Look at the number of flowers outside Clarence House when Princess Diana died, or Buckingham Palace. You know, the whole nation went into um, uh, into mourning. Kiss FM, back in the days when it was a real hip-hop garage kind of station, played slow beats all day long on the day of Mike Diana's funeral. Many, many years later, people were banging tins on Thursday night. And they were banging tins, not just to say respect to the NHS, but to say, we're in this together. It was kind of symbolic at first. Remember how we were only months beforehand, we were talking about cutting the NHS and taking away and defunding the BBC. And then suddenly, what do we all do? We run back to this couple of elderly institutions like grandparents and we snuggle up with them, the BBC and, and, and the NHS, because they kept us safe. We saw some very profound bits of ourselves exposed for the truth they are. We have deep down inside us a need for institutions bigger than us. And another thing, COVID taught us that what we do all day is crucial. Some people cope better than others. We psychiatrists call this maladaptive coping strategies. Getting laid, beating up your partner, 
smoking shed loads of skunk or locking yourself indoors and being fouled to yourself and to others around you are bad coping mechanisms. Being indoors, trying to look after yourself and connecting with the world, as we try to presume, they're good mechanisms. In other words, COVID has taught us that everything we do all day long is basically a coping strategy. It's told us, look at the life, look at the things you do, look at the, excuse the phrase, the bullshit you give yourself about what's good for you. Substances, like I say, are a mugs game. And we, these are gifts we've learned from COVID. The power of science, the need for institutions, and the need to be honest about how we balance our lives. And I think that's something quite profound that we could learn and apply in the future. Just staying with the theme of behavioural change you've kind of touched on there things that we can all do ourselves if we wanted to change behaviour including um, connecting to people um, being aware of what we're thinking and what we're doing but if somebody wants to um, try and get help with their drug addiction for example and they are they're in services because you work in addiction services don't you are there any new or interesting kind of therapeutic approaches um that, that you've witnessed that help people? You know, I mean, I've, I've had a lot of experience working with substance misuse over the years. It's not my main role at the moment. I'm more of a general psychiatrist now, but I, I did some research onto this in the 80s and 90s uh, when I was training. I'm often asked, is there a, a breakthrough in the treatment? And here again, we see this need for the quick fix. Actually, there aren't any breakthroughs for the substance itself other than don't use it. That is entirely up to us. And then we get to this idea of the addictive personality, the person that needs help. That's great. We can do things. Professionals and substance misuse treatment can make a difference. But actually, what we have to do is try to take apart the idea of what addiction or substance misuse actually means. It means a person with a mind living in a world takes a drug with the expectation that that drug will make a difference to their brain. If we look at that, we understand that the drug in isolation is only one small part of it. It's all very well giving up something. Like, you know, in some senses, chocolate eclairs are a drug. You know, some people can addicted to them and, and get very unhappy as a result of their eating behaviour. But unless we actually take away the substance and replace it with something else, here we go, a less maladaptive coping strategy, then frankly, no miracle pill or solution or quick fix psychotherapy gimmick is going to work. We have to look at what we really mean when we say about a breakthrough in the treatment of addictions. And I think the idea of addictive personality carries an inbuilt assumption of helplessness and resignation. Oh, I can't. It's my personality. It's a cop-out. So the real answers lie actually from taking a long, hard look at yourself. And that is uncomfortable. And when the uncomfort is beginning because you're trying it, that's a sign you're heading towards change. That's all I can say, really. We've had some questions in from um, from our listeners, and one of them is um, from an occupational therapist in Lewisham who mm -hmm. asks, um, you deal with the more acute end of um, mental health. How do you separate yourself from the work that you do? Well, I mean, you know, how does a pilot separate her life from, you know, day, hours and hours and hours of flying at sort of 35,000 feet? She just gets on with it. Uh, how do I do it? Well, basically by doing the same as I've always done. 
my medical training was an apprenticeship in staring into the face of suffering and keeping a not a poker face but a compassionate understanding face a sort of a caring vibe alive that's what we learn in medical school in nursing school and um, that basically teaches you the all-important part of recognizing your own emotions you see when a person's ill right that has a huge effect not just on their body and their mind and their life of course they're obvious but also the world around them and that means that people react to the people who are in the presence of suffering if you like pain is a is often a cry for help you know illness symptoms are saying please help me and learning to recognize those signs and not giving off distress signals of your own is something you learn very quickly in medicine you know, we are respected for our ability to stay calm in the face of suffering. And one of that thing means you look into yourself and you notice the emotions the patient's pain causes in you and you objectify them a little bit. You keep them in a box to some extent. And that means that day after day, you can get up and do a good job. As the cook, the, uh, the American the writer, the British journalist, he put it rather nicely, he said, a professional is a person that can do their best work when they don't feel like it. Doctors basically are very good at managing their own discomfort. They do it in different ways, but, you know, that's what keeps you able to do the job day in, day out. Ask any social worker, any doctor, any nurse, anyone that's ever worked with abused children, you name it, any prostitute, any soldier, <laughs> we're all in the same mess, you know, but that's how you stay calm in the face of it. Um, what would you say are the main symptoms of depression versus anxiety? Ah, there's an interesting one. The, the difference between anxiety and depression is really quite profound. And to understand that, you don't just think about us as humans, you can think of us as the earliest creatures on the planet. You see, my theory is that fear was the first true emotion. Fear was the thing that made you avoid the predator or the poison. And the opposite of fear or safety it meant what you went towards, went, we went towards a friend or a mate or a source of food. So anxiety can be understood as an overwhelming sense of uncertainty. That's the first thing about anxiety. Depression, on the other hand, is a negative state that is to do with what is more akin to a loss of mental vitality and a slowing down of the drive. Anxiety is all very, oh my God, oh my God. It's, it's all full of energy and it's fear, and it's catastrophe and disaster. And notice the themes of anxiety are awful shit is going to happen in the future. The themes are helplessness, overwhelming blot of control, catastrophe, and so on. Look at depression. It's slower. The voice slows down and the voice becomes quieter. And notice the thinking is themes of pointlessness, worthlessness. Shakespeare put it very nicely when Hamlet said, how stale, weary and unprofitable seem to me the uses of this world. Depression is about a turning down of the dial. Anxiety is about the doing gone up and the knob coming off in your hand. Now, these things both spill into ordinary sadness and ordinary fear and nervousness. That feeling about before you take your driving test for the first time, that's anxiety. But notice the framework, driving test, makes it okay. So... You must be very careful not to confuse healthy anxiety or healthy sadness with depression and anxiety. That's a big difference. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And at what point would you say, you know what, I, I actually need help and I need to go and seek out some help and people should go and see their GP? 
the point at which healthy emotional reactions, of which anxiety and depression are two, tip over into an illness where you need to go and see someone, and that someone doesn't necessarily have to be a psychiatrist. It could be, first of all, your mate or your mum or, or your granny or some respected senior in your culture who, who's got your back emotionally, right? But the point at which you should go to that person is when you notice that it's there most of the time and it is a beginning to become a dominant theme in not only what you say and feel, but what you do. In other words, it's starting to get in the way of you living your life. Well, as we say in psychiatry, it's a decline in function. Now, you take that decline of function and that persistence of this emotional change to someone who's not you, because you can't see it, because you're in that emotional loop yourself and you're sometimes drowning in it, they can look at the outside objectively. And psychiatrists, for example, are very good at spotting the difference between persistent, pessimistic, suffocating sadness on one hand and, as it were, the disturbance of enjoyment of pleasure on the other. You see, real depression isn't about just being low or sad, it's about the inability to have any other emotion at all. It's all flat. So we've got what we call anhedonia. So anhedonia, change also to changes in the body, a pattern of sleep disturbance, and the disturbance of sleep in anxiety and the disturbance of sleep in depression are very different, can lead to tiredness, fatigue, pessimism, worthlessness, helplessness, despair, and that can spiral into ideas of not being worth living. If you've got that pattern of symptoms, for God's sake, get help, especially if you're entertaining the idea that there's no point going on. Notice how anxiety is about the fear of stuff happening in the future. Depression is about the idea that maybe you don't need a future at all. That's a very important thing to look at, and that is when you need to get help. Ideally from a GP or a psychiatrist if it's got that bad. And people have different tolerance levels, don't they? And can kind of think, well, it's actually I'm feeling all right um, and wouldn't necessarily go out and seek that help. It's, it's noticing that early on. Well, this, this idea of tolerance levels is very interesting because what you're drilling down to there, I think, is this very interesting idea of resilience. Or in other words, toughness or stiff upper lip. And here we go again. Resilience levels... We get, we often talk, you often hear this figure, one in four people will get a mental illness. Well, hang on, that means that three in four won't. But what is mental illness? Mental illness basically is not just something that's happening in your brain. That's only one part of it. Remember, it's happening in your body too. And it's happening in what you do all day. It's not happening in your life. So in a way, mental illness can be defined as your, the extent to which your mental state gets in your way of getting on with other people. You know, other people are a fundamental part of our life. So, in a way, mental illness can be understood as, you know, <laughs> the capacity to generate discomfort in other people, in a way. So, you know, you can be really, really careful to, to look at what the whole bigger picture of mental illness really means in that sense. And then, I say, that's where you can start doing something about it. Um, another another question that we had from somebody was that if you are suffering with a mental um, health problem, how can you, um, while you're still in that phase of working things out, how can you reduce the adverse impact on your children? Oh, that's very difficult. You see, uh, that being a depressed parent, especially a mum who's 
are crucially just delivered. You know, I mean, the, a depression that occurs in the early months after birth, sometimes referred to as postnatal depression, can be a very, very, well, can be a very harmful thing. It's very, I don't want to sound terrifying about it, but, you know, it's a depression and its effect upon our children is a, is, is, is a huge issue that I think we're only beginning slowly to understand. It's not something that's my primary focus. Perinatal psychiatry is devoted entirely to this, but it's something I don't think we take half as seriously and as, as we should. One of the problems is that people, particularly new mums with newborns, are so caught up in their own feeling of worthlessness, shame and despair, on top of the natural nervousness that comes with having had a kid in the first place, who isn't terrified when they hold that, that, that thing in their hands that's screaming and looking and looking in need for help for the first time in their life, especially the first one, who wouldn't feel slightly daunted and terrified in amongst all the joy and the flowers and the fact you put the phone off the hook and all the rest of it. So, you know, there's normal reaction and there's the sadness. But if you're spiralling down into that horrible sense of depression, be it postnatal or any other, or addiction or anything really, it's getting the way of you being loving and kind and putting your kid first. You're in, so in that loop, you've got to get out of it. And that means, in that situation, get someone else involved. You have to have someone outside of you who you've got your back, who you trust, here we go, community again, that says, look, you've got to do something about this. So the simple answer to your question is spread the load. You can't self-diagnose when the thing that does the diagnosing, your mind, is actually part of the problem. So going to an outsider and being honest about it, that starts with a friend. It starts with a loved one. It might move on to a member of your faith community. It might move on to your GP. Anyone who you can trust and respect. And watch out for the snake oil sellers. And the, and, you know, and, the, and the people who are out to make money out of you. That's why I would say, for God's sake, don't reach for the pills. On the same lines, but not necessarily related to a parent with um, mental health, but for all of us who are parents and, well, maybe not just parents, teachers or working with children, what can we do to reduce the risk of um, children developing mental illness later in life so what what kind of the factors that are protective i suppose for children growing up well th there's an awful lot we need to do more of to for, 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 for i think the way that we raise kids uh, and the reason i say that isn't because i want to sound like some sort of you know like some sort of health freak or some sort of social preacher it's because something like 30 to 40% of people with severe mental illnesses, the sort of stuff that comes to me, paranoid schizophrenic illnesses, major depression, so-called borderline personality disorder, self-harm, eating disorders and so on, very often have their origins in unpleasant things that happened in childhood. It's a fact that a substantial number of people, the exact figures of this are going to be very hard to preside precisely, are abused by their parents in one of two ways. By acts of omission, the withdrawal of love, or even worse, the conditional provision of love, I will be lovely to you if you bring me a, buy me a Christmas present. That kind of stuff. Conditional things that tie to it, which is basically not providing the child with unconditional attachments and safety in the first five or ten years of their life, or acts of commission, in other words, doing horrible things to children. 
And men, as we know, are probably far worse at doing that than women, biologically, socially and culturally predisposed. The worst thing you can do is abuse your child. You, when you're doing that, you're abusing yourself, you're abusing that child's future, you're increasing their chance of having a severe mental illness later in life, and you are ultimately you are diminishing the richness of society itself. A person that abuses a child is abusing themselves and abusing the world. And could we get that idea into primary and secondary education, and we take that very seriously, I think we're going to see a significant change, not just in mental illness, but the way we all deal with each other. That's a profound question. So would you like to see it being taught in schools that children understand, you know, what's acceptable, what's not acceptable type of behaviour? I think we need to expand on that kind of formal teaching. I think that's a very, very challenging question because I think so many people can answer that in different ways. But from a psychiatric point of view, I think there's an awful lot to be said in the way in which we address and teach these issues. And we should be doing something far more imaginative, far more honest and open and creative in teaching. I think early in, you know, maybe what, late infant, early junior school? I'm sure there must be ways of dealing with this. The NSPCC have had that pants initiative, keep your knickers on in the country of strangers. Keep your pants on, you've got it checked. And P-A-N-T-S, for example, was a very, very simple acronym, you know. That's an example. There are many, many examples of how to deal with this with regard to child sexual abuse. But my point is that I think what we need to do really is to be far more honest in society's discussions about the taboo. We don't talk about the extent to which we are, you know, harming each other in childhood. Ask any child social worker. Let me give you a fact. 50% of posts in children and family social services and most of the inner London boroughs in London are either vacant or filled by locums. It is extremely hard to work in children and family social science, social care. I know that. I work very closely with these heroic people who do an amazing job. What does it say about a culture when we've had something like 50% cuts to our social service budget for looking after abused children? What does it say about the cuts we've had? Before we even start thinking about what we do in junior schools, we have to do with the mess we're in at the moment. We've got a long way to go there. But, hey... Like I say, this is something we can address for every single level. But detecting it, or even better, preventing it, has to be priority. Absolutely. And I think it comes down to, and you've mentioned it more than once, community. It's a collective. Uh, yeah. Responsibility for us all. Absolutely. We have to wake up to the fact that we all have a responsibility for... Well, look at, for example, supposing you're going home on a train one evening, right, late at night. You're sober, you know... Maybe you've had a drink and there's someone, the last train, yeah, the, the, the last train in, uh, say, Walthamstow, Victoria Line or whatever. And there's a girl at the phone of the carriage crying her eyes out, looking really sad. It's one in the morning and you know she's got to get up and get on that cold pavement outside and maybe get a cab or a bike over or a walk over or an Uber or a walk or whatever. You get a walk away. There's a girl crying. What do you do? Do you go up to her? Do you walk off? Do you hope that someone else might notice her? Those questions, what do we do to each other when we're in deep distress, are questions we all need to ask ourselves. You know, I'll leave the listener to think about their answer to that. We really hope you enjoyed listening to our episode with Dr Mark Salter. 
if you'd like to get in touch with us we are on all socials we're on instagram at portrait of a londoner twitter at portrait podcast facebook portrait of a londoner or you can email us portrait of a londoner at gmail.com thanks so much for listening